So we are continuing in our series called Ancient Faith, in which we look at one of the ancient creeds of the Christian faith, namely the Apostles' Creed. And each week we're looking at specific lines of the text as we are reminded from the creed to look to the scriptures. And so today we are looking at that he, Jesus, will return to come to judge the quick and the dead or the living and the dead. And before we do that, uh, completely unrelated, of course, or maybe it is related, I want to have you do some of the sermon for me. Namely, it's the summertime now, and so I'm lazy, and uh, just didn't feel like doing this part of the sermon, so I want you guys to do the part of the sermon for me. So I've got a question for you. You ready? Yeah. Come on now. I'm down here on the floor. I'm sweating it for you guys. I mean, what are we doing here? Are you guys ready? Yeah, because y'all are going to help me do this. Okay, so I want you to uh, imagine or remember a time in which you were wronged deeply, abandoned, betrayed, abused, cheated, a time that you were wronged deeply, when you were sinned against profoundly. Now I want you to imagine that the wrongdoer is in a courtroom with you. And you are standing before a judge. Now, what do you want that judge to do? Now, I know that this is church and you got to be nice in church. Let me just eliminate that rule. I don't know where that rule came from. If you read Jesus' teachings, he's not exactly nice. He's compassionate, but not nice. So we don't need to be nice. What I want from you guys is just like the Psalms, our raw expression of human emotion, I want you to probably at maybe a PG-13 level or less, just to be respectful, I want you to tell me what you want that judge to do. What do you want from that judge? Come on now. Vengeance. You want vengeance, right? What do you want? You want justice. All right, now Katie's going to help me out here, and so we are going to go at a pace uh, befitting of her penmanship. How's that sound? We got vengeance. What are you, you got justice. What else do we want? Comeuppance, what a great word. They want, oh man, we want them to get what's coming to them, right? What else do we want? Retribution. What else? Vindication. Mm. How many of you want to see that person smoted? Smited, I don't know what's the proper tense of that word, right? You just want them to get beat up. All right, let's try this. Uh, We're getting real serious here. How about when you're in traffic and you get cut off? And you want to grab that person by the scruff of their neck and throw them before a judge. What do you want? Fire and damnation. damnation. (laughs) See, now we're getting to it, aren't we? You got any more for me? Okay, good. Now, I want you to imagine a time or remember a time in which you wronged somebody deeply, betrayed, abandoned, abused, cursed, spoke ill of, gossiped against, undermined, cut down. Now, they have taken you to the courtroom, and you are now there, being looked at by the judge, all the evidence is laid before, what do you want from that judge? Compassion. Hold on now, hold on now, remember, befitting of the penmanship, compassion, 
We had forgiveness, mercy. We got forgiveness, we got mercy. There was one here, sympathy. What else? Reconcile. What is it? Second chance. Or 15 chances. Yeah, good. Can we give it up for Katie for helping us out? You people are hypocrites. Isn't it interesting? These are all the same things I want too, so we're all hypocrites, right? I mean, isn't it interesting that when we are wronged, we long for justice, vengeance, uh, fire and damnation for them, their comeuppance, retaliation, vindication. We want them to be smoted. But when we are the wrongdoer, we long for compassion, forgiveness, mercy, sympathy, reconciliation, second, third, fourth, fifth chances. Now, that is likely in the heart of all of us here. That seems to be the dynamic of human nature. And that dynamic, I believe, is speaking to two equal longings or two fundamental longings. Number one, the longing for justice. And two, the longing for grace. The longing for justice and the longing for grace. One of the reasons we've been going through this ancient faith series, looking at the Apostles' Creed, is because we want to tether ourselves to the truths found in Scriptures, not only to remind ourselves of what God teaches to us through the Scriptures, but also to refute. So we remind us, but also to refute all of the counter-narratives that are speaking into our lives as we go on from day to day. We are also reminding ourselves that in the Scriptures, in the teachings of Jesus, all of our longings are satisfied. All of our longings are satisfied. And I'm bringing this up for a reason, that we long for two fundamental things, justice and mercy, or justice and grace. And so this line in the creed that he will come to judge the quick and the dead, that word judge, some of us, when we are wronged, can't wait for a judge to show up. But many of us, we have a hard time with this idea of Jesus being the judge. We find uh, the idea of uh, uh, cosmic justice or that which comes after it, things like damnation or vengeance, we, th- we find them to be distasteful, especially in this culture. And so I want to lean into that a little bit while we uh, think together. I want to show you four different texts. I'm going to have them up on the screen. I'm going to go through these real quick, and I want you to see if you can find a specific theme. Uh, these are, are written by four different authors. Uh, there's a person named John who wrote the book of Revelation, Peter who wrote First Peter, uh, Paul who wrote Second Timothy, and then a dude named James who is Jesus' half-brother who wrote the book of James. And I'm going to go through these. We'll have them up on the screen. See if you can find a consistent theme between these four different authors, and uh, all this is found in of the book that we call the Bible. Revelation 20, 12 through 13. Then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. 1 Peter 4, 4 through 5. 
With, with respect to this, they are surprised that you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. By the way, that's a great band name for any punk band. Flood of debauchery. The same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance and his kingdom. James 5.8-9, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now check this out. Do not grumble against one another. Notice real quick the sin he points out. This isn't murder. This isn't adultery. He says, don't grumble against one another, brothers, that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You see a resounding theme? What's the theme? Judge. He will come to judge the living and the dead. Friends, Jesus tells you that you will be judged that there is a judgment coming. And many of us find this to be distasteful. We squirm at the idea of a cosmic judge. There are many authors, uh, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, who believe that this belief, that this Christian belief in a cosmic judge, they believe that it propagates violence. That if you believe in a God of judgment and vengeance and wrath, then you will be a person who is violent. You will be someone who lives a, uh, to quote a millennial, a very judgy life or a soups judgy life. You will be judgy if you believe in a God of judgment. Is that true? Will you be violent if you believe in a God of judgment and wrath? Now check this out. This works almost counterintuitively to our current uh, climate, to our current tastes. Because I want you to think for a moment. If God does not pick up the sword, then I have to. If God does not ultimately get vengeance, then in order to see vengeance, in order to see those things that I long for come to fruition, who has to pick up the sword? Who has to get their vengeance? I do. You see, it's fascinating. Jesus talks about things like forgiveness and grace and nonviolence, practicing nonviolence, things like turning the other cheek. But the only way that you can do that is if you believe that somebody's going to get judgment, that somebody's going to bring about justice, that vengeance is somebody's. See, if you do not believe in a God of vengeance, then you will look to some other entity to get that vengeance. So there's this dude named Miroslav Volf. He's Croatian. Uh, he was uh, uh, around in the 90s during the wars and the ethnic cleansings that we saw uh, in that region of the world. He's also a theologian, I believe, at Yale. And he says this. Now, this is a bit of a long quote, but I want you to hang with me because I think this is one of the most profound things uh, really, frankly, ever written outside of the Bible. I have to say that because I'm a pastor. Check this out. Okay, now I want you to just real quick, remember the first thing I asked when I was down here on the floor? I said, remember a time which you have been wronged profoundly? Okay, be there for a minute. In a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. 
In a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. Most people who insist on God's nonviolence cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. They deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands, persuaded presumably that it is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. And so violence thrives, secretly nourished by belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Scripture says, vengeance is mine, saith the Caleb, when he gets cut off in traffic. Wait, is that what the Bible says? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. He says, I will repay. You see, we need a God of who, a God of vengeance, a God who brings forth judgment. Otherwise, all of our longings for righteousness, for things that are wrong to be made right, we will have to get those ourselves by picking up the sword. Hmm. We need the judge. Now, real quick, this idea of, well, Jesus wouldn't judge me, Jesus is loving I don't believe in a God of judgment. I just believe in a God of love. Okay, let me just ask you a question. What do you think of a judge who is unjust in their judgments? When you have been wronged deeply and profoundly and you take the wrongdoer to court and you stand before that judge and that judge winks at you and says, you know what, I'm just a judge of love. It doesn't matter. Is that loving? One of the things that Wolf says, that it takes the quiet of a suburban home to believe in this idea that a God of judgment and justice begets more violence. He says it's the only way. In the, in the blood-soaked land of the oppressed, the only way that we can see God as loving and not practice violence is to believe that he will bring about True justice. And so we need the judge. We can't handle the judge, right? We don't like it. We squirm. We get all weird about it, but we need the judge. Because Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead, we can forgive. We can practice grace. We can practice nonviolence. We cannot seek retribution. When we have been wronged, we can receive it knowing that ultimately all that which is broken is made whole. All that which is wrong is made right. Now check this out. Here's the alternative. If that's not true, if Jesus does not come again to judge the living and the dead, if that's not true, the only hope you have for justice is for you to pick up the sword. And guess what happens every time that happens? It propagates more injustice. Unless you're completely capable of appropriately and accurately and with all of your cosmic knowledge, uh, efficiently bringing forth judgment. Okay, so check this out. When you are wronged, right, what happens to you? Let's use the cutoff in traffic thing, right? That's an easy one. 
What happens when you get cut off in traffic? How do you feel? Angry, hate, right? Rage. Yeah, is that a good judge? Are you in a position to like bring forth proper judgment? One of the fascinating things about us as people is that when it's oftentimes those of us that are victims that become the monsters and we justify our monstrosity by the fact that we were once the victim. Well, it's okay for me to do this evil because an evil was done to me. You follow me? The only way to break out of that cycle is to believe fundamentally in a God who judges. So we need the judge. But you can't handle the judge, right? Remember a few good men? You want the judge? You can't handle the judge. You can't handle the judge, right? Because you know yourself. We, we want to think that there's bad and evil people out there that if we could just take care of those people, everything would be made right. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote a book called The Gulag Archipelago, which was uh, kind of a, a pretty profound book written out of uh, the USSR and some of the labor camps there, he says this, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, if only it were that simple. And then he comes to this profound truth. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. You want to find the evil people? They joined you today at church. People who do evil, we do evil. We do sin. We lie, we gossip, we cheat. We undermine, we undercut, we betray, we abandon, we abuse. That's people. Who does those things? People do. Those things are evil. People do evil. You can't handle the judge. Because we know that if we stand before an all-knowing, all-righteous judge, well, we might be found what? Hmm. And so we can't handle a judge. We, we want to stand before that judge when other people do wrong and say, give me your vengeance, give me your justice, give me retribution. But when we're the wrongdoers, we say, give me what? How do these longings, how, how are they satisfied? Solzhenitsyn uh, speaks to the great equalizing truth of Romans 3.23. This, this levels the playing field. If you think you're better than somebody else, Solzhenitsyn and Romans 3 will help you have a better view or a more accurate view of reality. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned. Guess who that includes? Yeah, like all, everybody, including you and me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Some of us, we're here today and we, 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 kinda, we already recognize this. There's a song that we sing and, and some of us resonate with the language that, that we feel like we're sometimes a slave to sin. Like it's just, 
Like we do things we don't even want to do. We find ourselves in these besetting sins or these habits or we, we snap at that person or we undermine that person or we, or, or we, we fear, we're in, we're in trepidation, we doubt, we, we wrong other people. We, we find in hindsight, kind of looking back, we find, man, may, I do things I don't even want to do. We, we might feel like, man, I'm, I'm enslaved. I'm in bondage to this sin. You ever been there? There's this besetting sin, this habit I can't break. There's this overwhelming pressure, a cloud of darkness that's over top of me, and I keep succumbing to it. You ever been there? Confession is good for the soul, friends. Some of us are like, nope. I don't believe in a God of judgment. I don't believe, in, I don't believe that God really cares what I want to do. And let me just put this to you. Even, even if you don't believe in God's laws and God's righteousness, do you even live up to your own standards? Right? So let's say that there's a God who at the end of uh, your life, you go before the throne or the, the, the judgment seat of that God, and instead of him bringing out all of his laws, he just simply takes the magical tape recorder that's on your neck that every time, by the way, do you know that? You have that, don't you? Magical tape recorder or maybe an app on your phone. That every time you say the words, People shouldn't, or they're wrong for, or those people should not do that, or that is unjust, and, and that tape recorder kicks on and records your, your judgments. You follow me? And at the end of your days, let's say that at the end of your days, that, that cosmic judge, instead of busting out his law, he just takes that tape recorder, that app, and he plays it, and he just plays it all, codified, right in front of you. Will you live up to your own standards and your own judgments? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need the judge, but we cannot handle the judge. Moreover, we come into this idea of uh, the Christian idea, the, the idea that Jesus taught us, that Jesus has forgiven sin. That he has, he has forgiven us that he has extended to us his grace, this cosmic judge who will come to judge the living and the dead. The Christian view of that judge is that he's forgiven us. But how is that possible? All right, so follow me here. Romans 3, 23 through 26 is perhaps one of the most profound few verses in Scripture because it speaks to these deep, deep longings that many of us only catch glimpses of in our lives. How, okay, so follow me here. How can a good, loving, just God justify or forgive or make right the wrongdoer, the ungodly, the sinner? How can he do that? I'm glad you asked. By the way, real quick, uh, different pastors have pointed this out and I believe in it. No one is wrestling with this problem. None of us are walking around going, how can God in his free grace be both just and the justifier of the ungodly? But we should because we need a judge, but we can't handle the judge. Romans 3, 23 through 26, for all have uh, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace grace is a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How has Christ redeemed us? Whom God put forward as a propitiation 
I'll come back to that word in a minute. Propitiation by his blood to be received by what? Faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at this present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. How does the judge judge righteously and justly and still justify and forgive and show grace and mercy to the ungodly? How does he do that? Uh, Do you guys remember Easter? Help me out. You guys remember that? Okay. There was a Friday before Easter. We call it what? Good Friday. We call it Good Friday. And on Good Friday, we reflect on and we remember the death, the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ. And some of us might be of the opinion, well, that was just a good example. And it is a good example, but it's exponentially more than that. What is it that was happening on that Good Friday? You have this word, propitiation. How many of you, that's your word of the day on your word of the day calendar, right? That would be weird. This is like a seminary word, but it's a good word, and I'm glad they kept it in this translation. That language of propitiation, check it out, means the satisfaction of God's wrath. Follow me here. It means the satisfaction of his wrath. Because God is a good judge, he will seek to bring about justice. Anytime an injustice is done, he will make that right. How then does he make it right when he seeks to forgive people who have done injustice like me? You follow me? How does he do that? Says it here in Romans 3. We are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. There's three words there, and I want you to remember them if you can. If you want to write this down, this would be a good thing to write down. These are heavy words. These are meaningful words. These are important words, and these are life-giving words. Number one, redemption. Number two, justified. Number three, propitiation. Number one, redemption. That word, redemption, or to be redeemed, creates in our minds this imagery of a slave market. People in bondage. That language of being redeemed is similar to the language of being set free. To be redeemed. We have in Jesus Christ a redeemer who sets us free. Free from what? Free from the wrath of God. Free from the bondage of sin. Remember, I asked you guys a little bit ago, it feels like sometimes I'm, I'm bound, I'm bound to sin, I'm a slave to sin. Jesus Christ has redeemed us. How has he done it? Number two, justified, redemption, slave market, freed from the bondage of sin, Jesus is our redeemer. Number two, justified. That language of justified puts in our minds an image of the courtroom. The majority of our morning together, we have been talking about the judge. You follow me? Justified means that the judge says you are just. The judge deems you justified. Why? Because Jesus is our great advocate. Jesus advocates on our behalf. He goes to the judge and says, no, they are justified because of me. Jesus says, I and their justification, I make them just. How is it that we are made just? That the king, the creator of the universe, and the judge of the universe looks on us and says, Not only are you free from the bondage of sin, the reason you're free from the bondage of sin and the wrath of God is because you are made just, you are justified 
by Jesus. How is that? How then is God's wrath satisfied? All the stuff on the left column. Propitiation brings into our minds this imagery of the temple sacrifice. It's uncommon language, I get that, propitiation. But it's important because it's unique from redemption and justification. Propitiation brings to our mind one who is at the altar in the temple slaying a lamb. Now I'm gonna get graphic here and I'm doing this intentionally so, so if I sin, I'll ask your forgiveness. And as the blood drips from that dying corpse, intentionally graphic, by the way, we see in that slain lamb that God requires justice and that the justice comes in the life of the lamb. All throughout scriptures, you have these uh, lambs being sacrificed, spotless lambs. At the Passover, uh, the first Passover in Egypt, you have slay a lamb, take the blood, put it over the doorpost. Uh, You have uh, Abraham with Isaac slaying a ram and offering it up. You have throughout the scriptures and throughout the temple, you have this question, how do people deal with their injustice, with their sin? Well, you're gonna slay a lamb, you're gonna kill the lamb, and your sin will go on to the lamb, and when that lamb dies, I, God, the judge, will be satisfied. That will be a propitiation for my wrath. My wrath will be satisfied. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think the God of the universe, the king and creator of the cosmos, gives a rip about lambs? Do you think that dead lamb actually is getting the job done? No, no. It's got to be a pointer to something else. It's got, throughout the scriptures, you have this this dying lamb. It's got to be a pointer to something else. And it is. Read the text again. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a what? Gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over. Interesting that he uses that language. It almost sounds like he's hearkening back to the Passover where he passes over former sins and it's to show his righteousness in this present time so he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, all of that lamb stuff is pointing to this deep fundamental truth that the judge has become the lamb. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus shows up, one of the first things that John uh, the Baptist says, he sees Jesus coming at him and he says what? Behold the king created of the universe? No. Behold the Messiah? No. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of you and me. In Christ Jesus, you have held together in this paradoxically magnificent way the truly just judge and the truly loving father and king, the one who loves you and who seeks justice. And in Christ Jesus, he is the judge that gets out of the judge's seat and walks down and says, I judge you to death but I'm gonna take on the death for you. And all who believe in Jesus, all who repent and believe in that good news, in that gospel, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
But to all who do not, to all who continue to rebel against that judge who has become the lamb, all of them, you will experience the judgment and justice of God because God will get his justice because he loves us. He is not unjust. He is just, but he is simultaneously just and magnificently loving. What else, friends, for those of you that are still trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out, what else do you want God to do? He's given his life for you. Friends, we can rest because Jesus is the judge. We cannot pick up the sword. We can practice peace and nonviolence and forgiveness and grace, knowing that Jesus will get his justice. He will either take it on or he will distribute it, but Jesus will make all that which is wrong right. The judge become the lamb. There's a song that's, uh, it was popularized by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, we're gonna have it sung here in a moment, and as uh, Danny sings it, I want to encourage you to sit and to think about the judge that's become the lamb. This song is called P.A.S.U. It's popularized by Andrew Lloyd Webber. We know, uh, at the very least, it was uh, used in the 1200s by the church. If not, it possibly dating back to the 600s. It's an old one. And it comes from the last few lines, the song P.A.S., who comes from the last few lines of a Latin hymn, Dies Ere, which means day of wrath. And the lyrics are this. Merciful Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world, grant them rest. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, grant them rest. Grant them rest. Friends, you have been wronged, I'm sure. And you have been the wrongdoer, I am sure of that as well. Do you have peace? Do you have rest? You can find it in merciful Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we love you and we give you thanks for the many ways that you have provided for us. We are so thankful, Lord, for your grace and your mercy, as well as your judgment and your justice. We long to see justice done, Lord. Even in this moment, in these weeks, may we be agents of truth, righteousness, and judgment, and justice. But the one that stems from you, your heart, not seeking our own vengeance, but seeking true justice. Lord, that we would be agents of grace and mercy and compassion when we are wronged, that we would be a people who do not feel compelled to pick up the sword, but rather trust in you, the vengeance is yours and that you will repay, that we would be a people who entrust ourselves to you wholly and completely. Give us the power to forgive. Give us the power to practice non-retribution and non-violence. Give us the power to be lights in this community and to those around the world. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.